your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 1. begin our reading in verse 18, and we'll read through verse 21. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. And may God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Our quotation uh, to introduce the sermon today is from the Reverend Thomas Manton, a 17th century English Puritan. Let us hear what Reverend Manton has to say. When the devil destroyed men, he doth not forbid them to believe. He changeth himself into an angel of light. Presumption is rather of means than of end. Most deceive themselves with a false faith. There is nothing but the devil can counterfeit it. Felix trembled. Esau wept. Ahab humbled himself. Simon Magus believed. Judas repented. Pharaoh prayed. Saul confessed. Balaam desired. The Pharisee reformed. We had need to look to ourselves. But how shall we state the marks by which men may come to the knowledge of their state? Especially, how shall we discern what is true faith? In the first times of the gospel, the difficulty lay without. The gospel was a novel doctrine opposed by worldly powers. Bleak winds that blow in our backs blew in their faces. The gospel as a novel doctrine was represented with prejudices, opposed with scorn and extremity of violence. There was more in assent than now in affiance. Now, the gospel by long prescription and the veneration of ages hath gotten a just title to our belief. There is nothing in a literal and uneffectual assent. Really, really good stuff there. Thomas Manton, in, that, in, in the latter part of that quotation, maybe some of you didn't quite get it, he was saying that when the gospel was first preached, in the first century, uh, in the Christian era, that it was met with much opposition. It was easy to see a false faith. Why? Because it withered under the persecution and difficulty that was required to believe in those days. He said, that which blew in their faces now blows in our backs. Right? So we're pushed ahead, if you will, uh, to this easy faith because it's, widely accepted maybe less so today than it was say a generation ago or maybe a couple of decades ago true that still much less than the opposition that the saints in the first century undertook with so we have finished our building blocks of saving faith as we talked about knowledge assent and trust we finished that last week we had if you'll remember those verbs of motion with regard to trusting in Christ, resting in him, rolling upon him, looking unto him, and so on. All of those, those verbs of motion that take us out of simple ascent to drawing near to him and resting upon him. That's what true faith, biblically speaking, is. And why would the Lord put all of those verbs of motion that unite us to Christ himself and not to propositions about him, Why would we see all of those in Scripture if we were not to take up with them ourselves? And that's the point, isn't it? That there is such a thing as a false faith and such a thing as a true faith. 
The Puritans of old, in their day, believed that there were many false professors in the church. Uh, We might be inclined to think the same thing today when we consider the visible church from one end of Christendom to the other. And so, beloved, uh, we're we're now going to embark on a short study, maybe two weeks at the most, maybe three, probably not, probably two, but we'll see, on species of false faith as they are identified for us in the scriptures. I have three in my notes to talk about today. We may get to all three. We may only get to two of them today. But notice from that quotation from Mr. Manton, there's these false faiths. And how did he go to describe them? He said, Felix trembled, Esau wept, Ahab humbled himself, Simon Magus believed, Judas repented, Pharaoh prayed, Saul confessed, Balaam desired, the Pharisee reformed. And none of them, beloved, none of them were delivered from the wrath to come. These are all motions not saving. Right? What did they never do? They never came to Jesus Christ. We might consider for a moment, as a part of our introduction, the difference between Judas and Peter. They both betrayed Christ. In fact, Peter three times. Judas betrayed him to the Pharisees. Peter betrayed him to the servant girl to those that stood around warming themselves by the fire and others, and then went out and wept bitterly after hearing the rooster. Then you have uh, Jesus appearing after his resurrection on the seashore, and we see something about Peter that we don't see about Judas. When Judas found himself sorry for what he had done, He went to his false church guides. He went to the Pharisees. And what did they offer him by way of spiritual comfort and instruction? Close your eyes. What do you see? That's what they offered him. Nothing. What is that to us? See to that yourself. We've got what we wanted from you. We got the betrayal. You take care of the rest of it on your own. And they left him in absolute and abject despair. And he went out and ended his miserable life. Peter, having betrayed Christ three times, was fishing. I don't think think he meant when he was fishing there in John chapter 21. I don't think what he meant was, um, that's it, I'm done with this apostle gig, it's not working for me. I think what he meant was, Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead. Let's stay busy till he does. That's what I think he was doing. Uh, Idleness in scripture is never, ever commended. And so Peter goes back to work. That's all he knows to do at that point. And here they are fishing and morning time comes, the sun comes up and there's a guy on the shore. And he says, like we say here in Texas, how'd you do? Did you catch anything? Right? And John says, After Jesus says, throw your net on the other side. Could you imagine a fisherman? You know, put your net on the other side, you'll catch fish. Like fishermen say to one another, you must not be holding your mouth right. Like that's going to make a difference, the other side of the boat. And yet, he does. And he pulls in all these fish, right? And then John elbows Peter, says, Ixnay Peter, that's the Lord. And what does Peter do immediately? He throws himself in the water and he, and he swims to Christ because those three denials are looming large upon his conscience and he goes to the only one in the universe that can allay that wounded conscience. And there is absolutely no delay. As soon as he realizes it's Christ, it's like, get out of my way, Whoom, I'm in the water. He swims to Christ and of course Christ restores him with three questions for three denials. We remember that. Right Now, we, when we were talking about saving faith, we didn't use the word swimming toward Christ because that's not really what we see. But that's the same kind of thing that we see in Peter. He goes to Christ. 
He believes in him and so he rolls himself upon him. He comes to Christ. He receives Christ. He looks to Christ. He rests upon Christ. All of those verbs of motion like we talked about. Judas, there's a contrast. The contrast is not in the sin committed. It's in the forgiveness received. Right? Okay. So I'd like to talk with you. I I have in my notes here three. I think we'll get to two. The first is what we call devil faith, and the second is what we call temporary faith. I want to talk to you about those today, if the Lord should give us enough time to talk through at least two of them. This devil faith, we find it in James chapter 2, right? Let's turn to James 2. By the way, how how are we getting here? Uh, Remember that we're studying saving faith because Peter said, By him, that is by Christ, do we believe in God. We want to know what what it means to believe in God. We've we've been studying and opening up saving faith, justifying faith from our larger catechism and, uh, and the instruction that we receive there. So James is going to talk about uh, a, a faith that is without works, right? A faith that has no works to go alongside it. A faith, we, we, we might say, that is a profession only. It is only a profession without the good works that are necessarily united to saving faith. And we always have to stop and explain this because there are so many... Um, the theological nannies out there that want to make sure we're not going off into works somehow. Okay? We're not going off into works, beloved. But we are going to say what the scripture says about works. And that is that our works cannot save us. Why? Because they're imperfect and defiled in the sight of God no matter how good they are. There's nothing that we do that can withstand his divine judgment. Nothing. It is the perfection of Christ and the obedience of Christ by which we are saved. That's the righteousness that we stand before God in. But that is not to say that true justifying and saving faith is devoid of good works. In fact, it's just the opposite. The Bible tells us over and again that when we talk about uh, justifying faith, we want to put works as far away as we can, our works, because it's the work of Christ and not our works. But when we talk about saving faith, although it's the same faith, we are going to talk about those good works that are a necessary concomitant, a necessary companion to saving faith. And if they don't exist, they bring that profession into doubt. That's what the Bible teaches. Period. We don't need to be afraid of that. We haven't somehow descended into works righteousness. No. We've said that true saving faith has good works that always adhere to it. That's how we have confessed it in the larger catechism. Right? Faith justifies the sinner not because of those graces that always accompany it, nor of those good fruits, sorry, nor of those good works that are the fruit of it, but only as it is an instrument whereby we receive and apply Christ and his righteousness. That's how we're justified by faith alone, apart from works. But as has been said in a very memorable way, the faith that saves is not alone. It is accompanied by good works at every turn. Not perfect works. No such thing except for Christ. Okay, so now we come to James, and James is talking about that very thing. And this passage in James caused even as careful a theologian as Luther to stumble. Let's remember that too, that these are hard doctrines. We don't want to be impatient with one another over them, but we do want to be clear. And so, what will James say? Verse 18. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. The belief that there is one God. So far, so good. But there must be a lot of other things that come along beside that. Devils believe that. By devils... Um, the, the authorized version, the King James Version, doesn't use the word demon ever. Because in the 17th century, that had connotation to false gods. 
So they always, uh, the translators always translated the Greek word uh, diamenos as devil. Because they are devils in that sense. And they would stay away from uh, the impression that, th- that those things are the idols that are worshipped. They would stay away from that. Uh, they may stand behind them, right? Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the things that the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice unto devils. That's true. Okay, so what does James say? He said, well, they believe that there is one God, but they believe and they tremble. <clears throat> Did Judas believe there was one God? Yes. And he believed and trembled, didn't he? The trembling didn't save him, did it, beloved? These are important things for us to think about and to, and to figure into our understanding of what saving faith is. So it is true that many say today, I believe in God. We talk to people on the streets. Maybe some of you, you're, uh, you know, in, your, in your commerce, you're talking to the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. And you're having conversations with them and, and it comes up that you go to church and they say, oh, well, I believe in God. And we might, in some sense, you know, relieve ourselves. Oh, at least they believe in God. Beloved, the devils believe in God. Don't they? They do. In fact, the devil probably knows more scripture than all of us put together. He quotes it to Christ, doesn't he? When he's, when he's tempting him. Right? He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and they shall bear thee up, lest, lest thou dash thy foot against the stone. He quotes from Psalm 91, when he's tempting Christ there in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. We must ask about this faith then. When we say, I believe in God, is this really confessing a good confession? We must remember and testify to the one true God of Scripture. But simple monotheism, beloved, is not saving faith. We must remember that God is triune and God is sovereign. Remember what we've confessed in the larger catechism. Question seven, what is God? Or in the shorter catechism, question number four, what is God? It's much more than I believe there's a God. God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. This is what we confess about God. That's what fills up that word God. And that's why some theologians, I think, have rightly said that the word G-O-D in the English language, is probably one of the most meaningless words of all. Because we fail to fill it up with that biblical content and we stretch it and shape it and mold it and twist it into anything that we want. Remember Romans chapter 1? What does the apostle tell us about the natural man in Romans 1? It says that in verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and creeping things. Skipping down to verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God, that is the true God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind, to do those things which are not convenient. The natural man, he knows who God is. He has that witness in himself. God, we we read in Romans 1, has revealed himself to everyone. Everyone knows who God is. We don't need to prove the existence of God to the unbeliever. He knows He just doesn't like that God very much. You know why? Because that God claims claims upon him. You are my creature. You have sinned against me. You are not holy. You are defiled and under judgment. The natural man doesn't want that. 
And so he'll make himself a God that will tell him what he wants to hear. That will bring him near and give him presence. That will do everything except what the true God tells him. And that is that you must repent. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And thou shalt be saved from the wrath to come. So James tells us that the devils believe probably even more deeply in the true God than the natural man believes when he says, I believe in God. And when the devils believe that, they tremble. As we read earlier, the people at the base of Sinai in chapter 19 of Exodus trembled. Moses himself, Hebrews 12, 18 through 21, trembled. I may go so far as to say that Moses' trembling was different from the people's trembling. Moses trembled as a believer. The people trembled as unbelievers. They were still in their sins. And we know that because when they came to Kadesh Barnea, they refused the God who brought them out of Egypt and said, No, Lord. Right? The two greatest words held together in contradiction. No, Lord. If he's our Lord, we don't say no. We say yes. Right? If our Lord tells us jump, we ask how high while we're on the way up. Right? So, what do we see then? We see that these devils, well, they believe, but they tremble. We see that um, the people at the base of Sinai, they trembled. Turn with me to Acts chapter 26. Verse 22. Having therefore, this is Paul uh, giving his testimony before the Roman governor Felix. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day witnessing both the small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead, and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, well, I think I'm in the wrong place here. Mm. That's sad. A broken reference. There it is. Chapter 24. My original conception that I overturned because I said no. I got 26 in my notes. Memory served correctly that time. So in verse 19. Who ought to have been here before thee and object if they had ought against me. Paul again speaking. Or else let these same here say if they have found any evil do any evil doing in me while I stood before the council except it be for this one voice that I cried standing among them touching the resurrection of the dead am I called in question by you this day and when Felix heard these things having more perfect knowledge of that way he deferred them and said when Lysias the chief captain shall come down I will know the utmost of your matter then as we skip down to verse 24 after certain days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned, that is Paul, of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time, and when I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. He was able to put that trembling away, wasn't he? We never hear that Felix called Paul back to hear the gospel again, only that he met with Paul several times hoping to receive money from him instead. But he trembled. The people at Sinai trembled. Judas, we might imagine, trembled. But none of them trembled unto salvation. But trembling of itself isn't a bad thing. We, we heard that Moses trembled, didn't he? Moses trembled. And if we turn to the prophet Isaiah, the last chapter of that prophet, in 
chapter 66 and verse 1, Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me, and where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. There is a faithful trembling, isn't there? The devils believe in tremble. So we can't look at trembling as the indicator. But there is a faithful trembling that is different from the trembling of the wicked. Right? In Mark chapter 5, we have another instance of a, of a person trembling in the presence of the Lord. This is a most interesting passage, isn't it? Mark 5 verse 25 is where we begin. And a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing bettered but rather grew worse. When she had heard of Jesus came in the press behind and touched his garment for she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague and Jesus, immediately knowing himself in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came. And fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Both. She's not just healed. Right? It's not just the healing that she is after. No, she has come to Christ not just to be healed. Remember that that day, in that day, a woman who had an issue of blood, could not come to church. She was without proper public fellowship. It says here, for years, 12 years, she had not ever been to church because she was unclean with that issue of blood. She could not come. She could not come and worship the Lord. She could not offer up unto him. She was ostracized and separated from the worshiping community. A, a, a de facto excommunication, if you will. What is restored to her that day? Fellowship with the saints. The worship of God. She is able now to go, as we read in the, in the Psalms, in Psalm 42... She is able to travel with them that kept Sabbath to holy day service. She's able then to join with the rest of the worshiping community. And she had not been able to do that. She trembled. A faithful trembling beloved. We see her trembling, not a faithless trembling of impending judgment, but a humble trembling of her unworthiness. Yet not such as that would keep her from Christ but the kind of, of, of uh, trembling that drove her to Christ. Hear her confession. She said, if I but touch the hem of his garment, I shall be healed. This may not be a strong faith, but it is a saving faith, beloved. Remember the Pharisee standing at the front of the crowd in the parable of Christ with his hands lifted toward heaven. He may appear to have a strong faith that is not saving at all. But the publican stood afar off and would not dare to lift up his eyes to heaven and smote upon his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. The sinner is how the original reads. The chief of sinners, the worst of sinners, if you will. And Jesus says, one of them went to their house justified. Which one was it? We know who it was. It was the one who trembled. It was the one who trembled at the word of the Lord. So what's the difference between the trembling then? How do we distinguish in saving faith faithful trembling from the trembling of the wicked? Listen to James Durham. This is 
most helpful. It is a suspected and unsound faith that never trembled at offering to believe. There is reason to be suspicious of that faith, not to be of the right stamp, that never walked under the impression of the great distance between Christ and the person. The sense whereof is the thing that makes the trembling. I say not desperation, nor is there any distrust of Christ's kindness, but trembling arising from the consideration of the great distance and disproportion that is between Christ and the sinner. Faith holds the sinner going to Christ and the sense of his own sinfulness and worthlessness keeps him under holy fear and in the exercise of humility. That's the difference. The wicked tremble. And why do they tremble? Because they know judgment is coming. Why do the faithful tremble? Because they know that it isn't. Because they know they can come to Christ. And yet that great proportion is still there. Between Christ and the sinner. They don't clean themselves up in order to come to Christ. They have to come as Cromwell said, warts and all before him. And so they come trembling at the distinction between them and Christ. And the wicked come trembling because they know judgment is next. We will read in Hebrews chapter 12 of the people at the base of Sinai. They say to Moses, you go up there and talk to him. We don't want to hear another word. Why not? Because they know what the next word is. Having pronounced the Ten Commandments, they know that the next word is a word of judgment. That is why they tremble. Now we believe that some of them during their career in the wilderness came to saving faith. Praise the Lord they did. But not at that moment in their lives. They trembled out of abject fear. Moses trembled because of the distinction, the difference between Moses and the Holy God. And that's why Moses trembled. And that's why the lady that touched the hem of his garment trembled. And beloved, it should be, that's why we tremble. We prayed earlier today, didn't we? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And as a part of that prayer, what did we pray? We prayed that we would not become so familiar with God as to erase all of those distinctions that we walk um, proudly into his presence with our thumbs in our lapel. Here I am, the one you've heard so much about. Rather, we draw near in fear, holy reverence as children to a father recognizing not only is he our father, but that he is the holy God. And there is that distinction that remains in our minds. Beloved, that is faithful trembling. So it's not the trembling itself. All kinds of people tremble, but it's faithful trembling. Trembling at the distance, that the distance between God and the creature is so great that we could never enjoy any fruition of him as our exceeding great reward except by some voluntary, condi- uh, voluntary condescension that God himself brings, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. And that is the covenant of grace. It's the only way we approach. No other way. All right, well, let's go on to number two then. Number two, we call it Temporary faith. We'll not get to the third, which is miracle faith, and we'll talk about that. That sounds odd, but it is a true subspecies of faith in Scripture that we'll look at, Lord willing, next week. Temporary faith. What is that which characterizes saving faith? It's endurance. It's endurance. This is where we differ with those who preach a false gospel, right? Those that preach a false gospel say you can fall in and out of saving faith. Not true. Saving faith perseveres to the end. That's one of its marks. Right? What does Solomon say? Solomon will say in, at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, 
When that tree falls in the forest, the way it falls, that's where it's going to lay. Right? And so what is the admonition there? What is the warning? Make sure that when you fall, you're pointed in the right direction. It's not the faith that you had. It's the direction you're pointed. Temporary faith is a true biblical category. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. This is the parable of the sower. It's a very famous parable. You all know it very well. There are four different types of seed that are broadcast on four different types of ground. I'm sorry, one kind of seed, excuse me, on four types of ground. The seed is sown, first of all, on the roadbed, the hard pack, where the wagons pass. And what happens? The the, uh, soil itself is hard, so no germination takes place. Nothing. The seed is left on the surface and the birds come by and eat it up, right? Secondly, then, there is seed that is cast upon stony ground. And immediately for joy, it springs up, right? And then springing up, what happens after that? Then the sun begins to beat on it in the parable. Jesus will explain that as the the trials of this life and persecution and other afflictions begin shining or putting heat on that seedling, and what happens? It withers. And then there's a a third set of ground, and that is the, the seed that is cast among the weeds, and it grows up, and eventually it is choked out by the word, sorry, by the cares of this life, so that it is unfruitful. And then fourth, there's the seed that is cast on the good ground that brings forth good fruit, some 30, 60, some 100 fold. This parable is repeated in Mark chapter 4 and in Luke chapter 8. Okay, so as I have not read it out of Matthew, I I would really like to read it out of Luke because it is more to our topic this day. And so in Luke chapter 8, notice we'll begin our reading in verse 11. Now the parable is this. This is Jesus explaining to his disciples. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear. Then cometh the devil and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. They on the rock are they which when they hear receive the word with joy. And these have no root. Which, notice, for a while believe. And in time of temptation fall away. And that which fell among thorns are they which when they have heard go forth and are choked with the cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart having heard the word keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. So that's the explanation in the Lucan version, Luke chapter 8. And so what do we notice here? We notice that that Luke... Uh, quotes Christ as saying that they believe for a while. It's a temporary faith. It doesn't last. Why would it be called believing? Because that's what it is. It is a belief. It's not a saving belief. It's a common belief. It's not a faith that is wrought in God in them. It's a faith of their own devising. They have seen some things in Jesus that they like, and so they're going to follow him. But then notice, when those things begin to be outstripped by other afflictions, they fall away. When persecution comes, when deprivation comes, when Jesus said, you know, there were a lot of people that came to Christ and said, I want to follow you. To one guy he said, the foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Uh, Follow me, Jesus said. I will, I'll follow you wherever you go. But let me first go bury my father. Let the dead bury the dead. You come and follow me. The hardship of you losing your inheritance, is that going to keep you from following Christ? Do you believe for a while until that goes on the line? If any man would come after me, Jesus says, let him take up his cross and follow me daily. There's the daily self-denial that belongs to true saving faith. There are many who profess to believe in Christ until the heat turns turns up. 
I think I've told you the story before um, about a man, uh, Sergei Kordakov was his name. He was a Russian KGB agent in Soviet Union, Moscow. And he was charged with going around the city of Moscow along with two or three others, young men, um, after they had been plied with enough vodka. And they would break up, and by break up I mean literally break up, Bible studies, Christian Bible studies. They finally caught up with him, the, uh, the uh, Soviet Union did, after he was converted to Christ and had fled the country and was given asylum in Canada. They sent a hitman and found him in Canada and had him shot. Uh, there are several stories that, that he tells in his book, and, and one of them is about that, that, that time when, when, when there were those who came in with machine guns to a Bible study, and they said, those not willing to die for Christ now, leave. And a number of them left, and then the soldiers put down their weapons, and they said, now let's have some fellowship. Well, they had a profession, but it was a temporary profession based on some good things that Christ offers. And see, this is the difficulty, beloved. There are many that come to Christ and believe on him like mercenaries believe in their, in their guy that pays them. And when he stops paying, or when the cost becomes too high, they fall away. Christ himself spoke of those who must count the cost before they come to him. These are hard things, aren't they? Many of us have known people that have had a Christian profession for quite a, quite a number of years, perhaps. And then something happens. It becomes too costly. They meet up with someone and they take them away like Solomon was drawn away from the true religion by his foreign wives. Maybe they go to an unbelieving school and, they, and the society that they begin to join with ridicules Christianity and the ridicule becomes too much for them and they concede. There are those who spring up with joy and believe only for a time, but then the fires of persecution, the heat of the sun, as it were in the illustration, beats on them and there's no root. Beloved, that is not saving faith. And neither is the next instance. That, that, that also is a temporary faith where the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and as Mark puts it in his gospel, the lusts of other things choke out the word that it becomes unfruitful. I do not take that to mean saving faith. Uh, a couple of the other things that I want to talk to you about in weeks to come, uh, we'll, we will talk about a crowded faith. Right? That's where Jesus is added to the galaxy of other things. There's a community faith where we're part of the community. So, yeah, of course we're in without having a vital relationship to Christ himself. Here it's temporary. And there's going to be some overlap between some of these, although we need to bring out these separate pieces. Here it's temporary because true saving faith lasts. Turn with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 10. We've recently spent a little bit of time in this passage in the last few weeks, so I'll not belabor this point, but remember that there are these warnings in the book of Hebrews, and they are difficult warnings, but they're warnings, obviously, that we need to hear. God put them in his word for us to read and to profit from, right, that by patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so the warning comes beginning in verse 26, if we sin willfully, and please understand what the author means there. He doesn't mean if you've committed a willful sin. He means if you've apostatized. That's what is being spoken of here. After that we receive the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses of how much sorer punishment 
Suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he, that is the sinner, was sanctified, an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, and I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the, hand of the, living, in the hands of the living God. Do you think that that temporary faith that is described there is saving faith? Well, no. It's falling into the hands of the living God for judgment. No. And so to avoid presumption then, we are warned in Scripture. Beloved, presumption is a wicked sin. To believe that we have, you know, what, what I've called before, a gravy train with biscuit wheels to heaven. You know? One Dallas theologian at the seminary said, you know, people can become unbelieving believers and still go to heaven. No, beloved, they can't. Saving faith is not temporary. It's permanent. It lasts. And so after that warning to prevent presumption, notice what the writer does now following. But call to remembrance the former times in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions. Partly whilst you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst you became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me in my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of rewards. Can I put this in the, in the language of the parable of the sower? You weren't that kind of plant that sprung up and when persecution came, withered away right away. You've already endured temptation. This is what he's telling them. You have endured the spoiling of your goods. You have, endure, you have endured reproaches. You don't have temporary faith. I warn you to prevent presumption, but my confidence, the apostle writes, is that you have true saving faith. You've already weathered the bright sunshine in the heat of the day. And so notice now what he says. <clears throat> Cast not away therefore your confidence. Which hath great recompense of reward. Verse 36. For ye have need of patience. That after ye have done the will of God. Ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while. And he that shall come will come. And will not tarry. Now. The just shall live by faith. That is. It is the warp and woof of his life. Now notice what he says. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. You see what the, what the writer does here. He is exploding any hope in the doctrine of temporary faith. And he encourages them and gives them Confidence in that they have continued to call upon the name of the Lord, although in first century Judaism it has been very difficult to do so. They have been ridiculed. They have they've had their goods taken away. They have been ostracized from their homes. As a matter of fact, many Jewish families, even until today, 21 centuries later, will say of a Jewish son that converts to Christianity, my son is dead. That's what they say. They endured all of that. And so the apostle encourages them that they have borne the heat of the day and continued faithful. And yet he warns them that they would not upon that account become presumptuous and leave off the patience that is necessary. Beloved, this is exactly the message we need to hear. You're never told scripturally to look back in your Bible for the date where you prayed the sinner's prayer. The Bible never tells you that. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 3. It's not temporary faith looking back at something that did happen, but forward to something that will happen. Paul will talk about his life as a Jew in the first portion of the chapter. And he'll, um, he'll run through that very, very clearly and carefully. Then in verse 7, 
Those things, they were gained to me, Paul says. But those I counted loss for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss. For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the, through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, fellowship of his sufferings, and being made conformable unto his death. But notice verse 13 now. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. It's not that I've crossed a threshold, Paul will say. It's not that I've prayed the sinner's prayer or got the sacrament in my mouth or shaken the pastor's hand or joined the church or walked the sawdust trail or given my life to Christ or done that a hundred times. It doesn't matter. What is it? I'm pressing toward the mark of the high calling. This is the attitude of saving faith, not temporary faith. Temporary faith can look backward and assure itself falsely. Saving faith looks ahead to Christ and goes to him. So, beloved, temporary faith then is also a false faith. It is like a man who hears of faith in Christ and the prospects of his riches and glory. He believes for a time. But then he is confronted with self-denial, the mortification of his lusts, that he must be changed inside out, that his life must be given to Christ. The cost of discipleship is simply everything. It's just everything. It's that you become living sacrifices to God, that you give up ownership of yourself. It's not your life. You never had a life. Not ever. People say, I gave my life to Christ. Can I ask you, beloved, why would he want it? What do you add to him? No, he gives you everything. And this is why we are united to him. This is why we believe on him and come to him. It's not because we give our lives to Christ. No, it's because he gives us life out of death. And that's what we never draw back from. The man that comes to Christ upon promises of eternal life and, you know, skiing in heaven, if you will. Well, when it gets too tough, that will be traded away. That's temporary faith. It doesn't work. It won't last. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 2.17, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. If my testimony to you, and Paul is speaking this from a Roman prison, if my testimony to you cost me my life, I rejoice in that. Lesser faith fails under such tribulation, trial, and temptation. People are ready to come to Christ for what he gives. But when you hear, you've got to put away your sin. You've got to give some things up that you were countenancing before. Like Paul told the Gentiles in chapter 4 of Ephesians that we read earlier. You have to give that up. That's not a part of what it means to have faith in Christ. When you have to mortify your lusts. When you weep. When you, as a part and parcel of your faith, search your heart and weep for sins and Call upon the name of the Lord for forgiveness and mercy and then seek to follow him in new obedience and put away every false way and walk in his ways. Beloved, there are many that are willing to come to Christ as a savior for heaven's sake. But many of those fall away when that becomes costly. That's temporary faith. Lord, save us from temporary faith. And what's the remedy then? For temporary faith. And we'll close with this. The first is that true faith finds its joy and commitment in the means of perseverance. The Lord has given to us these means of grace. They are means. The grace is his. We don't trust in means. Right? We must not expect that the graces of eternal salvation, which come to us in this life, 
uh, faith, sorrow for sin, repentance, perseverance, the pursuit of holiness, obedience. We must not think that these will be in supply apart from the means that God has given to us. That is, to be active and engaged in a Christian community. To come to church. To bring your children to church. To hear the good word of God. To, as the, as the prophet will say, to hear it line upon line. Precept upon precept. Here a little, there a little. Never ever wearing out because it may seem tedious. Those are the means by which God brings us to eternal salvation. Causing us to persevere in faith. That faith that is not a faith that draws back. But it believes to the saving of the soul. All the way to the end. Remember like Rebecca. Who, who was asked, wilt thou go with this man? And she goes. She left her father's house. It is like the bride of Psalm 45, who must leave the house of her father and kindred. And most good, sound theologians understand that that's a picture of the church. That the church must leave her, or the, the, the people of God must leave their former parentage and patridi, uh, fatherland. And they must go to, the, to that new city, Jerusalem, and reside there. It is like the, the merchant who finds a pearl of great price. And what does he do? He forsakes all others to buy that pearl. Everything he has. Or the man that purchases the field. Having found that field in which the treasure is hid. He sells every bit that he has. So that he can buy that field. This is how valuable Jesus Christ and his gospel is to us. That we're ready to give up everything. And if, beloved, you're not ready to give up everything, then may the Lord bring to each of us the kind of persecution, the kind of tribulation, the kind of affliction that we need, whether it's a sickness, whether it's a deprivation, no matter what, that he would, as a faithful father, chase us to the ends of the earth until we are ready to say, Lord, I will have nothing but thee. Because everything else standing in the way of that will fail along with its temporary faith. But he will never fail. Well, with that then, let's read one more passage. Turn with me to Luke chapter 14 and then we'll be done. Verse 25. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father and mother, and wife and children, and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it less happily, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, that all, behold, that all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make a war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. The salt that has lost its savor, that's just another Bible phrase for temporary faith. Lord, deliver us from temporary faith. Lord, deliver us from devil faith. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come unto Thee having heard the warnings and yet having seen great examples of saving faith that believed through much difficulty and received much encouragement from thee. O oh Lord, we pray 
that we would uh, follow these words here of our Lord Jesus in Luke 14. That we would uh, count the cost. That we would take up the cross. That we would understand what true faith is. That it is indeed that whole-souled thing that we've been talking about. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee that Thou hast given such faith to men. And Father, seeing saving faith for what it truly is, we confess yet again and affirm that it is the gift of God. It is not something we can find in ourselves. And so we come unto Thee, beggars that we are. Asking that thou would shed abroad that faith in our hearts. And grant to us that forward motion toward Christ and his resurrection. Grant us the greatness of heart like thou didst grant to the Apostle Paul. That we might press ahead and not look back. O Lord we pray that thou wouldst grant to us a proper trembling. A knowledge of how far removed thou art from ourselves, and yet a coming to thee while trembling, and that thou wouldst also grant, Lord, that we might not come to thee for thy benefits, but unto thee, that we might rest and remain with thee, and that we might have that faith that is to the saving of the soul. And we pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.